Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit podcast. I'm Chris O'Fault, the editor of the Toolkit. Uh, today we're going to be talking about web series, uh, which is not something I know a ton about, but there are just a tremendous amount being made, and some are really finding homes and really sneaking into all these digital platforms. And so I wanted to bring in a couple people to talk about it and learn how they're getting made. And my first guest is Kit Williamson, star and creator of The East Siders, which just July 1st, Kit, is that right? It was on Netflix, so that's pretty good for a web series to find its way onto uh, onto Netflix. Kit started this off um, putting two short episodes up on YouTube and quickly grew an audience, and that was from 2012, and then he just ended up on Netflix. And that four-year journey is something uh, he's captured wonderfully in five uh, posts he's actually written for IndieWire, uh, which we'll link to, um, really kind of like a how-to and some of the lessons he's learned, but uh, we're gonna try and cover that four-year journey today. Kit has really, in addition to making a wonderful show, you should see Siders, um, Kit has really become an expert and really kind of thought quite a bit about this um, web series space. And so today we're going to really tap into that more than talking about the show. Um, So Kit, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So what was the starting point in 2012 when you you were starting Siders? Well, I was in grad school getting my MFA in playwriting at UCLA. I had just been dropped by my agent and my manager, and I was really questioning whether or not I wanted to be in this business. And if I were to stay in this business, under what terms I would want to to continue on. And I, I realized very quickly that I would be useless if I wasn't telling stories. And I looked to the one space, like so many people do, where... A content creator can decide whether they're going to tell a story, how they're going to tell the story, and who they're going to tell the story to without any gatekeepers, which is the web. And at that time, was there, is that, you were, you were in Los Angeles. Was there a lot of actors? Was there a lot of people making web series at that point? I was the only uh, actor in Los Angeles at the time. Um, (laughs) Since then, a lot of people have come around to the fact that there's an entertainment industry there. No, everybody that you meet in Los Angeles is an actor and everybody you meet in LA now pretty much has a web series that they're developing or that they've shot. So I have a lot of uh, of thoughts about that and how the space is different from now mm-hmm. to, 20, uh, to 2012, but I would say even in 2012, a lot of people I knew were having that conversation. Uh, some who achieved great success and some who, uh, who just kind of had the wrong mindset about it and, and you know, didn't, didn't really think about how they were telling a story specific to the web. Well, one thing that you and I had talked about was the fact that you had a few different ideas. You had a different, and, and you settled on Eastsiders for a very specific reason. I mean, it's a great story, but why was, why, why you, had, you had a very distinct po- um, philosophy about how to approach making a series. Yeah, I really feel like you need to write your press release for your web series before you go into production. If you have a great script, that sometimes isn't enough, actually. There's so much out there now that you've really got to ask yourself, what is the niche audience? Who would write about this? Who would read about it and who would click through? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not saying be salacious or topical or ridiculous, but really ask yourself, does it have those components? Is it press-worthy and why? And so we haven't talked about Eastsiders. Why was Eastsiders that one that you could write that press release for and you knew? And we'll talk about how you found an audience for it, but what was it about Eastsiders? Well, Eastsiders is a dark comedy about a gay couple living in Silver Lake, California, and their friends, kind of their drunken outbursts and double standards and how they make sad and funny messes of their lives. 
on its face, that's not by itself a wholly original idea for a show. But I think that allowing gay characters to be complex, flawed, and fucked up was a little bit novel in 2012. So that coupled with the fact that it was a, a of a place, it was about Silver Lake, allowed us to approach local press. The fact that LGBT audiences are still, in 2016, starved for content, particularly mm-hmm. quality content, and particularly content that is let's say cable um, in its in its um, approach to storytelling um, enabled it to get all of the gay press that it could possibly get. And so, you know, the East Siders starts, it's a, it's a couple living in, in Silver Lake and they've just, they've just gone, they're going through just had the aftermath of an infidelity, right? And so they're trying to keep together. And so even just something like that, like very basic relationship, messy relationship problems is something that you weren't, there were gay characters, but kind of like all the kind of fucked up like relationship stuff and just being, being a human, you weren't really necessarily seeing in these characters, right? And to this day, I still get people on Twitter, gay and straight alike, who say that they, uh, they don't like the fact that the characters drink too much or they don't like the fact that the characters cheat on one another or gosh, it's portraying stereotypes. Well, you know what? Honestly, it's a stereotype I don't see portrayed all that fucking often on television. You know, the, oh, the, the gay cuckold. Yeah, name a network television show that's about gay cuckolds. Like, it's not really... You clearly didn't go to the ABC upfronts this week. <laughs> yeah, and it was all gay <laughs> This year. It's crazy. They all have horns. Um, but, you know, in, in terms of that, allowing gay characters to fuck up their lives, I do think that that's something that we really mostly see on the web. Um, and on top of that, we had a topical angle, kind of going back to the, um, the idea of a press release. We timed our episodes to coincide with the Mayan apocalypse that didn't happen. And so there was actually an end of the world party in episode two of the show, which is kind of the inciting incident that kicks off the show. The first episode is the morning after. The second episode is the night before. And we timed the night before to come out on the day of the Mayan apocalypse. It's basically the tagline at the time was what happens after the world ends. Mm -hmm. In this case, the world being their idea of what their relationship was. So you put... With the first two episodes up on YouTube, what were they like ten minutes a piece, something like that? Yeah, they uh, basically made a twenty-two minute pilot. I uh, self-financed the first two episodes for like two thousand dollars in a bag of chips. <laughs> but so 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 they they went. I mean, I, I don't know if, what the term is. I guess viral. They they caught on very quickly. Um, and that, I want to take a step back because I think sometimes there's this this philosophy that if I put good content up online. Mm-hmm. It's going to it's going to find its audience, and that's true to a certain degree. But you really helped this along and really treated this like a science, and that comes back to this idea of the press release, right? Could you break down a little bit about the websites and the database and the kind of you know you basically became your show's publicist, and then I became an actual publicist for a time <laughs> after that for other web content creators. And now I consult on web PR for that reason. There's not a um, kind of ethereal, uh, magical element to it. Yeah, of course, there's something of that. But you can also make a goddamn spreadsheet. You can make a Google Drive of every single author that has written about 
a comparable web series or three comparable web series and introduce them to your work. And they're going to be as receptive or more receptive to you, the content creator, than they would be to your publicist. Unless you have, I don't know, Celine Dion in the lead or some shit. Like, you, unless you are actually leading with a celebrity-driven angle, it's the story that tells it. And who better to tell your story than you? And so you went out and found websites that would you could see having based on what they wrote you know I, I, you approached IndieWire and you saw that we did guest posts about how I did this so you you did those but I'm assuming that there's LGBT websites that would celebrate the fact that there's these type of characters and then there's also I know you supplied some video content too which you know Jude and I know you know that people eat that up so I mean is that part of it is like seeing what people were writing about and then figuring out where Eastsiders fits in and then hitting them at all these different levels. Exactly. You have to start with a niche or multiple niches. One niche that is available to people are increasingly people that are writing about web content. Mm -hmm. But even those outlets are going to be hit with a lot of pitches. Mm -hmm. So ask yourself, like, what what are you going to be the only web series that pitched to be covered about today? You know, for in our case, it was definitely the LGBT press. They embraced us immediately. They've embraced us to this day. We've moved from web to print um, to larger and larger. Like we're, we've been on the cover of multiple LGBT glossy magazines that are distributed freely in New York and Los Angeles and uh, Minnesota and all of these different regional markets, some that we've done through the help of working with PR teams, most that we've gotten on our own through the years. And from that, from making a splash in one world, you can transfer over and make a, a splash in other worlds. Once you have pull quotes, once you have articles that you can point, point to, once somebody Googles your show and sees, wow, everybody has written about them, then they're going to want to write about you too. People like to bandwagon. Even smart, creative people like to bandwagon. And that's part of the reason why you see everybody covering something at the exact same time. It's because they know that people are looking for it. And so off that, you get a lot of, you're getting a lot of views on YouTube. This led to crowdfunding so that you could finish the, the first season, right? And then eventually crowdfunding to, to do season two. I believe it was like 30000 to finish... The first season and 150 to do the second season is that right yeah we had a goal of 15 and we met that in four days and went on to raise nearly twenty six thousand. Mm-hmm. and then season two we had a goal of 125 and we raised 153 okay and so is that partially building up right off that like you've got press you've got people watching and you've built a community and that it, the no one likes crowdfunding but you were able to transition that make a transition into that and we were also coming at it kind of right before crowdfunding fatigue hit its mm-hmm. kind of peak. And crowdfunding is something that I might explore again because we do have you know a backers list of over a thousand people who are committed to and interested in seeing the show continue. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think our timing was very fortunate in that. Um, and in between the two uh, crowdfunding campaigns, we had the first season picked up for distribution by Logo's digital platform, LogoTV.com. Logo we'll talk about because you've, you've had a lot of different platforms, so we'll get to that. God, I've had um, a lot of platforms. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and the actual making of this, is it is it kind of, you know, I, we do a lot of writing about how independent films get made and that kind of getting the band together and working on a micro budget. Is, is a web series very similar? It's like, in addition, you're also building a filmmaking community that you're kind of relying upon to make 
make this? In the sense that, like, everybody's going to fuck you over all the time? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I also have those feelings of, like, my God, I've made so many incredible friends uh, I, that I never would have encountered apart from the fact that we came on a set together and then kept coming on a set together mm-hmm. over and over and over again. I just made it sound like a porn set. That's not what I meant to do. <laughs> um, but, you know, like, thinking about it in terms of a community is incredible. It's, it's a great way to think about it. It's also... Um, a truth that when your aspirations are larger than your budget, you're mm-hmm. going to be beating your head against the wall a lot of the time. But what about like even locations? I mean, what about even like main locations that you know you're going to use again? Do you have to be like, I mean, are those friends or the places? Are they? It's funny. Those are some of the friends who fucked me over. <laughs> Super fun. Um, you know, we had locations that we established and had to get like a rate and like a location agreement that mm-hmm. said that rate on it that then in between shoot days tried to increase the rate. Uh, we had people who said that we could shoot someplace and then days before the shoot said, oh no, it's not available anymore after we confirmed. That was a friend, by the way. <laughs> you know, things like that, just people's general lack of understanding that, you know, even though it's low budget, it doesn't mean that it's disposable and it doesn't mean that it's not incredibly important to you. You just got to prep yourself for people doing things like that. But the challenge that I imagine that would separate the web series versus like the indie film model is the indie film model, you go into a location, you shoot it all out, whatever bridges are burned or whatever doors are closed. You're go- In a web series, you got to go back to that bedroom. you got to go back to that kitchen, right? So it's like it, it, it's over an extended period of time, right? And And that must be difficult, right? Because you're not... You're shooting one episode at a time. You're not... We actually block shot most everything. You did. You boarded it out to... Oh, okay. We we shot... For season two, we shot more than 177 pages in a month. Okay. So we just did it like it was a monstrously oversized feature film. Okay. That's smart. Um, You wrote a piece for us uh, in which you advocated for every actor to have a web series, to start their own web series. And you kind of went over some some points, but why why is that? Why is it such an important skill for an actor? What what do you what do you learn as an up and coming actor from having for, from having done this? I think it depends on your experience level. You mm-hmm. know, coming into this world, I hadn't actually done that much film and television. I'd done a bunch of um, theater. I came from uh, the New York theater scene. I'd done a Broadway show, some off Broadway, and a lot of off 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 Broadway. And coming into LA without a reel, without any sort of like proof of what I could do as an actor, it was very, very difficult to get people to take me seriously past that first initial year where people thought maybe I was, you know, able to play a high schooler and then they realized, nope, nope, no way. Andy's gay, get him out of here. Um, so like realizing that I was gonna need to kind of provide proof of concept for myself mm-hmm. was part of what led me to think about the web space. Um, also, if you're less experienced, you will not find a more valuable way to understand the craft of film acting than sitting through the hours and hours and hours of going through your own footage. Mm -hmm. You will learn your good and bad habits very quickly and you'll learn what is and is not actually important Mm craft-wise on a set as a film actor. And I know that everybody has a different approach to it, but television, from my experience in recent years, craft is incredibly important. If you're fucking up your continuity, you're fucking up everybody's day. You know, and there's emotional continuity, physical, you know, the physical continuity of when you put down the glass, things like that. 
and you've got to be on it and in charge of your own process. So the people who say like, oh God, I really need a director and blah, blah, blah. Like I, I hear that a lot from, uh, from people. I'm like, well, I mean, yes, it's true. That is its own craft and art form. But at the same time, um, you don't get a lot of notes on television sets. It's pretty rare that somebody sits down and holds the co-star's hand and tells them how to perform something. That's something I think is more in the, you know, kind of um, hyper-indie world of, like, we really get to dig into the character together. Now, television, you're largely on your own. They've got a lot more to contend with. I mean, that's one thing you've written. You learn why you're not getting cast. Is that kind of what you're getting at? That's kind of what I'm getting at, yeah. And also when you think about your own casting and like when you think about um, the process of casting others, you know, like you'll, you'll learn very quickly. Nobody, you know, like I was saying, I needed to provide proof of concept. And I had been railing against that as a theater actor for years until it came time for me to actually audition people for the role of Jeremy, uh, which was the only part that we really auditioned anybody for. Everything else was offers in season one. Um, And looking at the submissions, there was just no way I was going to call anybody in that didn't have a reel. I did not have time. I didn't have enough slots in the day. We were only afforded one day in the place where we were holding auditions. You know, you learn very quickly, like, what the submission process is like when you're on the other side of it. Now, you have left yourself open uh, for many different platform possibilities. And part of that, and I find this fascinating, is, is that also thinking in terms of I could split this up and do little chunks in a, a kind of a web series type way, but it also could can be congealed into, I think the first one you were thinking this could be a 90, put together it could be a 90, something like a 90 minute feature. I think the second season you were thinking it could be pieced together if you needed to into like 30 minute kind of like traditional TV episodes, right? Yeah, season one was either 10 to 20 minute episodes or a kind of slightly longer feature film. And season two, I wrote it as both 12-minute and half-hour episodes. Okay. This is the part that hurts my head, and I, I used to teach screenwriting. Like, you're, you're, and your, your show is well-structured. It's not, it's not loose. But how do you wrap your head around, I'm going to tell a story that either could be broke, you know, I break it at minute eight, or I'm arcing a 30-minute episode. Because like, that's got to be some kind of mental gymnastics that you're doing in terms of thinking of your story in two ways. Or am I just not embracing enough how wonderful episodic is and that if you have great characters, things are tracking. I think about it in terms of cliffhangers and you mm-hmm. want something interesting to happen in the middle of your half hour episode anyway. So mm-hmm. why not have that be something interesting that can propel you along? Mm-hmm. But the way that I kind of cheat a little bit is that I allow myself to do kind of an episode, quote unquote, is a day. Mm-hmm. in most of these and in season two I played with well what if the half hour is the day and we're kind of breaking in the middle for the mm-hmm. 12 minute mark um, there are some things that like structurally I would take a ruler out and slap my own hand with except for the fact that I'm plan- I was planning on it being a binge watching experience when the first season uh, when the second season came out first season was weekly um, second season you'll see things that I didn't do in the first season like have the introduction of a storyline in episode three as the C story that's mm-hmm. barely touched upon that then kind of grows into the A story of the next episode. Like the ways you plant the seeds of things like that in episodic storytelling mm-hmm. are really fun and exciting and I've really enjoyed exploring them and we'll definitely do more of that in season three. And this left you 
a lot of options in terms of where to go with this because you're building your own crowd, which is a, which is an asset. And you know, I, I know there's been a lot of different steps between between YouTube and Netflix, but could you kind of you know, in terms of like how you found platforms and how you put this thing out there and then, you know, we were talking before, I mean, Netflix is so perfect cuz it's international. It's it's yeah, I mean, the audience is enormous. I mean, that's obviously got to be like a goal for something like this but how did you take that those pieces that could be bite-sized or being put together and, and work your way through all the various platforms that you did to get to Netflix well from YouTube we were approached by Logo while we were in production mm-hmm. on the remainder of the first season and that was an incredible opportunity for us even though it wasn't very lucrative the fact that we could say we had sold the show mm-hmm. and we recognized that opportunity when it came up even though um, there were some drawbacks to it that have become assets over time. They had us geo-blocked outside of the United States, which we were you know, upset about at the time. A lot of fans were very upset about that at the time. I got pretty much daily hate mail for like a month uh, before people kind of moved on from it. Uh, and we were trying, like scrambling in fact, to find international distribution options because we had withheld VOD rights and SVOD rights from Logo. They just wanted free streaming, advertising supported for one year in the United States. Mm -hmm. So looking at and thinking about the specificity of those rights when you're ready for your show to level up to a paid platform or to level up to a licensing sort of situation or to become an original, the way you can still make more money and you can make the show uh, go different directions is thinking about the rights that you withhold. So it was very good that we withheld VOD and SVOD and DVD rights and that we had a term of one year only for Logo because that enabled us to broker a relationship with Wolf Video, Mm -hmm. which was initially distributing the first season as a feature film on video on demand and DVD. Mm -hmm. From there, after the Logo uh, deal ended and we pulled the content from free streaming entirely, we got what was honestly a surprise deal. I was not pursuing it nor expecting it with Amazon's SVOD platform. We'd been on their VOD platform for about six months, and we performed very well in terms of individual transactional scale uh, sales. And so they gave us a licensing agreement for a one-year subscription video on-demand model for Prime. So the difference for people who don't know between TVOD and SVOD is transactional video on demand and subscription. It's the difference between buying something on iTunes versus streaming it on Prime or one of these. Uh, Hulu or Netflix subscription services. Right. Buying access to SV- SVOD catalog. stands for for subscription VOD. Mm-hmm. Uh, transactional VOD is that like you're going to pay three dollars to rent something. And there's also AVOD, advertising video on demand, which is what our deal with Logo was, mm-hmm. or what free Hulu is, mm-hmm. for example. It's free streaming in the sense that you don't pay for it, but you pay for it with your time because you're watching ads. I mean, it really seems to me that the, you built an asset by building a crowd and then thereby, therefore, withholding your rights, not giving them all away. And as that crowd builds, you, you're you able, you're leaving yourself open. You're never signing away. For you to sign away all of your rights, maybe when season three of uh, Eastsiders, um, you would need to have a substantial, like, we want to fund your season and do something like that for you to give away all of your rights because you just realize as the market's ever-changing and you are bringing an asset with an already established crowd, right? Or a marketing megaphone. You know, if you told me that you were going to hire a top New York PR firm for six months and put ads in the subway, I'd say, absolutely. (laughs) You know, like, take it all. Take it 
it all. I don't care if you even put it out. So, so, so one thing that Kit has Kit, Kit has um, consulted um, other people doing web series, and he's also started uh, Brooklyn Web Fest here, which is going to be in the fall, and kind of using that as a jumping off point. What would you tell? It's not 2012, but you're in the same situation as 2016. Kit Williamson four years ago, but it's it's now the landscape we're in now. What do you tell uh, people that were in your position four years ago? What how to approach this? Is the advice much the same, or is is are we talking about some oversaturation? Are we talking about different platforms? What what is your advice? Because I know you do talk to a lot of young people that want to make web series. I think you've got to think um, even more literally about what niche audience you're approaching. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the death kiss is web series, the web series, and I'm sorry to be unkind, but if, if you are writing a story about a struggling actor making a web series to try to be you know, a famous web series creator or whatever, like, you've got to really ask yourself, how is this new? How is this unique? Who will write about this and why? Um, so that's why I always say, like, start with the niche, start thinking like, uh, very specifically about who your audience is. Um, was your niche, would your niche of 2012 of, you know, realistic portrayal of, of, um, gay men living in, in, in Silver Lake and showing the kind of, you know, real day to day life is, is, would that in 2016 qualify, would that qualify the Kit Williamson, write your press release beforehand? Would that... Would that qualify in 2016 or? Sadly, yes. It would. Oh, all right. Yeah. That's a we're, we're in one of those communities yeah. where, unfortunately, um, <laughs> <All right. laughs> we haven't seen as much progress as everybody would, uh, would like. And it's mm-hmm. funny being in those conversations now that I'm thankfully in a position where I'm pitching television shows and mm-hmm. working with literary representation. And, you know, I'm always in the back burner being like, oh, what about Eastsiders? And you, I cannot tell you how many people will be like, well, the market's oversaturated right now with looking. And I'm like, okay, it's canceled. <laughs> what do you mean? And also it's one. That's also one show. He named two. <laughs> you know, like, oversaturated with one HBO show yeah. that like 2 million people watched. Mm-hmm. Actually, I, I shouldn't say that. I don't know what the exact ratings were for that show. Um, um, Brooklyn Webfest. Tell us about that. Brooklyn Webfest and Content Creator Conference is something that I started two years ago with Amanda Daquila. And it is two days of screenings and panels and informational events uh, in Dumbo at the Made in New York Media Center by IFP. They have an awesome screening space there. We've offered panels on distribution and monetization, how to be your own publicist, pretty much everything that you could think of in terms of what you want to you know, know as a web series creator entering this space and also a lot of networking opportunities. It's October 7th and 8th this mm-hmm. year uh, in Dumbo and we have an incredible board. We just signed on Comedy Central to join our executive uh, executive board, IFC, Maker Studios, full screen. We have a partnership with IndieWire as well as a lot of other great uh, press outlets in Time Out New York. And what we're really trying to offer people is actual exposure, actual exposure to these executives. Our entire executive board has agreed to meet with the winning series of mm-hmm. the festival. And I think that that's something that's really important. Uh, this was born out of me going to a couple of web series festivals and having um, some really bummer nights at, like, let's just say, a Radisson by the LAX airport in Los Angeles where two people were in my screening room at a conference center room and it looked like it was being screened on a math projector from 1997 (laughs) and you know not and having had those experiences as a content creator Mm -hmm. i really want to offer the antidote to that basically 
Kit Williamson, thank you so much. Thanks for coming in. And uh, see East Siders third season going to happen? We'll, we'll see. And we'll in see. the meantime, you can check it out on Vimeo On Demand as well as Full Screen, Hulu, uh, Amazon, Wolf On Demand, iTunes, and now Netflix. Also, uh, IndieWire Indie listeners and readers, it, it's Netflix. It's, you know, they're all, they're all on Netflix. <laughs> oh, and by the time this comes out, we are going to have closed submissions for Brooklyn Web Fest. But if you email me at bkwfinfo at gmail.com, we'll give you a special page to extend submissions until September 1st. Thank you. Thank you. Guest number two today is the new digital media critic for IndieWire, Jude Dry. Um, Jude, welcome. Thank you for having me, Chris. Ah, um, this is great. So you've been digging into to web series. What, what's, one, what's something that you've seen that's kind of innovative that you've enjoyed? I recently discovered this great animated web series called Lady, an mm-hmm. animated series. It's on Vimeo. Um, not a lot of views, but I'm pretty sure... Um, the creators have recently moved to New York and are going to start making some moves. It's a it's about a ladybug voiced by a very funny male voice actor who is one of the creators, I think. Um, and she has this lover, Prince Daddy, and it's straight. It could go straight to Adult Swim, in my opinion, mm-hmm. um, if they had sort of a more queer bent to them, maybe. Although, you know, it's pretty vague. It's a ladybug. But because yeah, one thing when I think of web series, it, you know. Kit was, I think, following a, a little bit more of a model of like a show and an arc and thinking about kind of a, a product with an end game. What I'm often seeing also is kind of the sketch pad. People um, not, I think one thing that's different is people aren't just writing their way into their career anymore. They're kind of getting friends together, they're figuring out, they're experimenting, and they're finding their voice. And is is this kind of episodic web series approach the, the way that voice comedic voices animated voices dramatic voices queer voices are developing definitely i think i mean if you look at the high maintenance model which is sort of like the breakout you know that's the gold standard for a web series right Mm. um i don't think they had if you look at those episodes there isn't a, a through line but there are each episode is incredibly well crafted there are a few characters who recur um you can, see it, you can see it get better and you can see it get more sophisticated as it goes. Like you can kind of see them figure out, right? Like by, by episode 10, they've got it. They know what's going on. And, but you can kind of see them develop that in the first five or six. Totally. And I think that, yeah, and what they had is a, is a great concept per episode. And whereas something like Eastsiders had, you know, a, a great concept as well as this, you know, a storyline. A serialized and, aspect to it. Yes, yeah. and that's a smart way to go, too, because you, like Kit said, he, he wrote them to be broken up into 12 minutes or a full half hour. Um, there's this gra- uh, great project called Graves, which is kind of being sold as like a... It's shot in uh, VHS, which I love. Um, and it's kind of like a... It's almost like a Daria-like Buffy blend. Mm-hmm. And it's like set on this woman's 30th birthday and like 10 years ago she and her friends are sort of some unnamed horrible incident happened to them with mm-hmm. the, involving demons um they're five five minutes each but there's it's leading up to something and you get the sense it's building it's mounting um but also in the it just has a tone similar to lady it just has this it's got a point of view i think that's that's what always catches my eye when i'm watching something 
And when they make something like this, where are they throwing it up? Where are they, it, it, people, kids out, kids, you know, they're in their 20s, but they're out, they're out making something and they're just experimenting. Are, are, they, are they using Vimeo? Are they looking for a specific platform like Funny or Die that kind of meets the content? What, where, where are they putting it? Um, the two that I mentioned were both, are both on Vimeo. Okay. I think um, more com- com- straight-up comedy sketch stuff goes to, straight to YouTube. Mm-hmm. There's this great comedian named Cola Scola who makes <sighs> hilarious... I think Kit knows him. Um, he makes <laughs> these, like... And they're, like, they was, they're almost like... Uh, they could be on Saturday Night Live or Mad TV mm-hmm. or whatever the alt version of that is you know comedy bang bang or something mm-hmm. um he's like he's got this one sketch where he plays a, a mom he's like hi i'm a mom <laughs> and it's just like i like orange i when i found out that orange juice didn't have as much this brand didn't have as much vitamin c as the leading brand well i nearly lost my shit <laughs> and then she goes off into this like murderous rage and just kept driving <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but i mean i think that's also and we can end it here but i, I also it seems like maybe for for these type of creators, it's the asset at the end is um, that having found their voice and being able to present themselves either as a performer or as a writer or as the potential of doing something bigger, right? Is that is that a is that a big aspect of this? Um, yeah, as to use it as a calling card, yeah, definitely. And what I have noticed also is. Um, you know, these YouTube stars are having trouble crossing over. This is sort of a, a different question that mm-hmm. I I pose a lot in a lot of my work. Um, but when something like Lights Out, Dan Dan Friedman, um, he was a he was the director, and he so that was like a much easier crossover. So he had this two minute horror short that did so well, and now he directed this huge feature. Um, so it seems like to me, if if you're gonna have a viral hit. Um, or if you're looking for the next great talent out of YouTube, the YouTube space, you want to be looking at the directors rather than the talent, the, you know, the vloggers. The YouTube guys are usually, or the kids are usually performers of some sort, right? There, there's an aspect. It's less of a narrative. As, as, yeah, it's about side. them. It's about hanging out with them. It's a lot of fan interaction. And, you know, they have amazing numbers, but they've really struggled to cross over into traditional Hollywood because the quality is just not there. That's Jude Dry, and uh, Kit's still here. And uh, this is IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit podcast. Uh, Thanks for listening.